This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Greg Berman and Aubrey Fox, the authors of Gradual, The Case for Incredible Change in a Radical Age. How are you doing today? We're doing good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. I would like for you to start by telling us something about yourselves and how how did you get started on this project? You want to take a first swing, Aubrey? Sure. Uh, so um, Greg and I have worked in criminal justice nonprofits for over 25 years, and we met together uh, at the Center for Court Innovation, which is a nonprofit that works with the court system and, and other criminal justice players in New York City. Um, and we've gone on to other parts of our career. I now run the New York City Criminal Justice Agency, which is the nonprofit that's the city's main pretrial services and research agency. Greg's doing amazing work at the Guggenheim Foundation and and running this really remarkable journal uh, called Vital City, um, co-running it. Um, And, you know, we've been interested in taking on uh, this really interesting debate about how social change is possible and, and trying to bring a different perspective to the question. Yeah, so just to add on to that, as Aubrey says, you know, we've been working in the not-for-profit sector. We're not academics, we're not philosophers, we're not theorists. And so we've really written this book from a practitioner perspective. And in particular, the work we've done uh, in our careers has really involved a lot of work in partnership with government. Um, So we've had a chance not so much to be inside government, but to work closely with government. And I think that we've seen over the years a few things keep popping up in our experience. Um, You know, contrary to a lot of the rhetoric that one sees in places like Twitter, most government people who work for government, whether they be frontline workers or bureaucrats, are not uh, bad people. They're not uh, craven. They're not horrible racist thugs. They're decent people trying to do the best they can in really dif- difficult circumstances. Uh, so that's one lesson that we keep coming back to. A, se- a second lesson that we keep coming back to is that the problems that we ask government to solve inequality, hunger, violence, mental illness. These are very, very complicated, hard problems that have been with us for time immemorial. Um, So our expectations about how easy it is to solve those problems, you know, should should be very modest. And then the third thing that we keep coming back, kept coming back to in our career is that um, government actually was making a difference on the ground 
uh, on a regular basis, maybe not every day with every problem, but there were all these kind of small wins that we saw happening all around us, but they weren't the kind of wins that get you on the front page of the New York Times. Um, they were rel relatively small that could be, you know, making the bureaucracy work a little bit more efficiently or getting a little bit more money to this program that has some evidence behind it. But we thought that those wins should be celebrated in a way that they haven't traditionally been. Um, so we really wrote the book, I think, to try to bring forward those lessons from our uh, work experience that we thought were not being ad adequately represented in, in the public culture. In the introduction, you took a historical approach. Tell us about the Federalist Papers and how that's so important. Yeah, I, I guess what I'd say about that is um, we do start by looking at these remarkable essays in support of the U.S. Constitution that were largely written by uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was great about writing this book is is being able to look at some of our founding documents through a different lens. And I think what I came away with having read uh, the Federalist paper and papers and written about it in the book is just a sense of optimism about the wisdom of how our government was set up. Uh, we talk a lot about the importance and value of humility, of of under of, of kind of understanding on a deep level that we we really don't. No one person has all the evidence or information they need to be 100% confident in what they're doing, and there's value in having um, sources of support. And interest and direction from multiple multiple levels of government, um, and the ideas that were articulated in the Federalist Papers are really all about um, allowing for a government structure and system that that doesn't end arguments, it doesn't have one clear winner and one clear loser, it doesn't have drop the mic moments where one person prevails over another, and that often is frustrating. It's a part of our system, the decentralized nature of our system that's frustrating to a lot of people who want quick wins, who want dramatic change. Um, but, but what the founders of our country were really pushing back against was the sense that there had to be one winner, there had to be one loser, that you had to, to move more quickly than what experience teaches us, where we really do need patience sometimes to, to get to the right answer. Um, and so it in writing the book, I think we were able to more deeply engage. Again, as Greg said, we're not philosophers, we're not political scientists. We're, we're working practitioners. We're people who people who've worked in, you know, in often very difficult environments trying to implement criminal justice programs. But to be able to step back and 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 say, like, wow, the things that we're encountering on a day to day basis as practitioners, we can connect more deeply to something some of the founding values of the country. I think was very exciting and inspiring for us. I think we were also reacting to a lot of public discourse that uh, was very negative, and that remains the case, you know, up until the current moment. There's a lot of crisis mongering. There's a lot of threat inflation, and this is true on both the right and the left. You have a lot of people throwing their hands in the air and saying, you know, the system is broken. Our government is broken. And again, I don't want to be too optimistic, although I think. Aubrey and I are both on the optimistic side of the, the spectrum. You know, there, there are problems with our with our system. But I think that going back to the Federalist Papers enabled us to, to really have the perspective that, you know, by and large, the system is operating more or less the way the framers intended in their infinite wisdom. Um, and I think that 
you know, the analogy that I've sometimes used, Aubrey will roll his eyes that I'm using it again with you, Deidre, but, you know, I feel like the people that are demanding radical change from the American federal government is akin to someone feeding dollars into a Coke machine and getting frustrated because the machine doesn't deliver champagne. That's just not what the system is designed to do. And you can feed as many dollars as you want into the Coke machine, but you're never going to get champagne. And so I think that that's the the note that we were trying to hit by going backwards and hitting the and, and reviewing the Federalist Papers. Tell us about the gradual approach to public policy and how has it changed in present day? Maybe I'll just start by trying to kind of forthrightly state the premise of the book. Um, so it, it is, as you mentioned, Deidre, called "Gradual: the, the Case for Incremental Change in a, in a Radical Age." And I think what we're really arguing is two things. One is that incremental, gradual reform is the way that government works in almost all instances. So there's a kind of practical reality to it. And, and I think there's some common sense to that observation. I mean, even in our personal lives, uh, gradual incremental change is, is, is almost always what happens. I mean, if you think about having a drink or a cup of coffee with a friend, you're you're typically going to describe your day and, you know, your days could have some frustrations and some things that are that you're happy about, but you're going to be making, you know, small steps towards the goals that you have in your life. Things don't tend to change overnight. So I think part of the book's purpose is to say, look, you know, this is really how government works in in practice for the most part. But I think the other thing that that we we tried to do, which may be a leap for some people who are encountering these ideas or reading the book, particularly in the environment we live in, is say that it isn't just the kind of status quo that most change occurs gradually and incrementally. There's real value in it. Like it's a good thing based on the kind of trade-offs and the pluses of minuses of how social change and and operates and how our society operates, that that you don't have to think of incremental change as, as something that's wrong or bad or unsatisfying, that if you kind of probe into the into this concept a little more deeply, you can see it as a source of strength and value. And, and once you do, you can, you can use it as a, uh, you can leverage it as a strategy um, that can produce the kind of change that you're looking to accomplish. Now, in your book, you talk about the Reagan revolution and how that reshaped America. Can you tell us about this in terms of gradual change? I think the Reagan revolution, and it's not a big focus uh, in in our book, but we do touch on it briefly. Uh, I think that that was a profoundly shaping event for our politics in the United States and our culture. And it was a really big reset moment. And I do think that it was, in fact, drastic change in many, in many ways. Um, I think that uh, Aubrey and I are both to hit reveal codes that we are, we're both liberals by, by instinct. So it's the kind of change that we wouldn't necessarily have advocated for. Um, But I think that even uh, the Reagan revolution, as we write about in the book, the change was not not all not all bad. There's some things that you would point to in in the Reagan revolution that I think did make our country uh, improve our country or reset it in some positive ways. But I think the Reagan revolution really is uh, an example of something that you should be cautious about kind of advocating for change at that kind of drastic, drastic level, um, that that can be a shock to the system and really have some ne- negative repercussions. Um, 
And I think that one of the big reasons why we are advocating for incremental change as opposed to more radical change, particularly at the current moment where our country is so finely balanced um, between Democrats and Republicans, is that if you drive systemic radical change um, down the throats of people that don't approve of, of it, you know, the 49 percent that don't that don't approve or voted for your opponent, that's a recipe for real backlash and real uh, upheaval. And I think that that's always the case, but I think it's particularly true at, at this current moment of political polarization um, in, in this country. You have to be really, really careful about trying to pursue radical change at that kind of level. You know, just, just to add, add quickly to that, I mean, I, we write also in more length about um, the Great Society and, and the presidency of LBJ. Um, and, you know, what the, those two examples share, the LBJ and, and Reagan era, are kind of landslide victories. I mean, certainly by modern standards, um, a huge electoral mandate for both individuals, LBJ and, and Reagan. And the kind of mandate that just hasn't existed really since then. And and really to kind of emphasize Greg's point, we do live in a much more divided country now. And so it is, I think, reasonable to be cautious about trying to make grand change in a kind of 51 to 49 country. That doesn't mean that, you know, a large majorities can't be assembled. Um, and over time, we may see shifts in, in the size of, of, of that kind of coalition and that kind of mandate, but we just don't have it now. And I think as frustrating as it may be to those people who want to kind of impose like the equivalent of, of what an enormous majority could um, approve of in terms of change in government policy, we just don't have that now. Absolutely. Uh, Section one in your book, you talk about the secret Congress and their ability to pass legislation from 1985 to 2018. Tell us about that positive. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a great story in a way. And, And I don't think we came into this. I certainly didn't come into this thinking that it's what we would find. But it's true that, you know, one of the things that characterizes public perceptions of Congress is that there's a kind of campaign mindset. This is the kind of rhetoric that that politicians engage in when they're trying to win elections and win votes. And then there's the kind of day-to-day practical reality of how Congress operates. And those are extremely different, very radically different. And so, as we were saying before, elections are much more um, competitive now. And so you can have small changes in voting behavior swing the Congress from one party to another. And so there's a real incentive to amp up the kind of public communication and the uh, public broadcasting of huge differences between the parties. And that's really an electoral strategy. I mean, you have Congress turning over every two years, potentially. But, you know, in, in the day-to-day work of how Congress actually operates, if you look at output, actual output, how much legislation is passed, how many of the governing party's priorities make it through the legislative process, what you find is basically incredible continuity over time. And that's because there are, and, and you know, I think this can be extended to a general theme of the book that, you know, we people tend to pay more attention to political processes because they're a little sexier, they're a little easier to cover. Did the bill pass or not? What's in the bill? Who's debating? What's in the bill? But there comes a point when you have to go from passing the law or having the election to actually doing the work. And that 
step really is where a lot of information is lost. Like how does government actually work is not a question that people who aren't in the system typically are engaged in. And a lot is lost because of that. And our point in our chapter about secret Congress, which is a term that the blogger Bat Iglesias coined um, to indicate there's a lot of work that's being done under the um, under the scene that people don't know about. A lot of what Congress does every day and how it functions is not covered in the newspaper. Uh, and it has stayed relatively consistently um, productive over many decades. And that's that's just an interesting point that I think people people should know about and and, and grapple with. But but again, it leads to this larger, I think, awareness and understanding that, you know, a lot of what people are preoccupied with is largely symbolic. It's largely driven by politics, but the actual day-to-day work of translating politics into on-the-ground practice looks and operates very differently and operates in a much more gradual, incremental, and, and actually more stable way than, than I think a lot of people have been led to believe. Chapter two, you talk about the practitioner veto. Can you tell us some examples of how what's going on with police, teachers? So I think that that chapter is attempting to focus, to echo Aubrey's point on how things really work in the real world, in our experience, as opposed to how it gets played played out um, uh, in the New York Times or online on Facebook or Twitter. And the reality is that even if you win elections, um, you ha- still have to translate your ideas into practice on the ground. And to do that, that means inevitably that work is um, the work that is done by frontline police officers, teachers, social workers, um, nurses, etc. And these people have hearts and minds of their own. And our experience has been that if those people do not feel involved in the change process, if they don't feel like they've had a voice in coming up with a policy change, that they are creative and can find ways to circumvent those policy changes um, and undermine them. And that looks, you know, depends on, on the circumstances that can look different from one agency to another, from one place to another. But sometimes that is leaking stuff to, to the media. Sometimes that's involving in work stoppages. Um, sometimes that is um, just <laughs> doing a slow roll, um, you know, delay, 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 waiting for a new election and somebody else to come in um, to take the place of, of the politicians or the agency commissioner that they don't approve of. And so we called that the practitioner veto. And, and I think that what we were trying to get at in, in that chapter is really try to focus the attention of those who want to drive government reform, drive government change, that winning political elections is, is not enough and writing policy papers is not enough. You really have to focus on practice on the ground. And that means um, dealing with um, you know street level bureaucrats and their hopes, dreams, and desires, and wisdom uh, in the process. In Chapter 3, you call it What the Public Wants. What did you find about the Gallup poll on policing? What does that tell us? Well, that that chapter is really devoted to 
taking a deep dive into you know what does the public want because what we've seen over the past couple of years and again this is true on both the right and the left where you have very mainstream politicians getting up and saying the public wants drastic change nothing short of transformational change will do and you have that note being echoed by very mainstream players you know on the new york times editorial page and so we wanted to just take a deeper dive into that and say is that true really and there's a million polls you can look at, but our reading of the polling is that there, in fact, is not deep um, uh, support among the American people for transformational change. And, you know, we commissioned a poll for the book where we asked registered voters, you know, do you do you want the government to move quickly to institute significant change? Do you want them to do nothing or do you want government to move gradually by far, the the majority of the respondents to the survey said they wanted government to move gradually or not at all, in fact. And, and that point of view, a, a strong defense of the status quo is, is often missing from our policy debates. With regard to policing in particular, um, you know, one of the, the most vivid expressions of this desire for radical change at the moment, of course, is the demand to abolish policing, to abolish prisons um, that you see saw kind of become more salient uh, in the aftermath of the horrible slaying of, of, of George Floyd. And so that that demand to defund the police or to abolish prisons, I think, gets a lot of traction on social media. Out in the real world, not so much. Uh, the polling is heavily tilted against that. And that's the, the, the consistent across socioeconomic lines, across gender lines, and across racial lines. It's even um, uh, polls very negatively in the black community as well, based on the polling that we looked at. So I think that there's, if you take a deep dive into into the public polls, I think it's very, very difficult to, to come away with the idea that the American public is hungering for radical change. Section two. Now, in chapter four, you talk about Social Security. Uh, tell us about the Great Depression and the elderly, and who were the heroes from Wisconsin? Yeah, well, just <clears throat> thank you for going through the book so thoroughly. I mean, just to give people who are listening to this podcast a, a sense of the book, we start out by um, really showing the constraints that underlie a lot of how government works and that tend towards gradual and incremental change. Um, but in the next section of our book, we look at case studies so that we can kind of tell the story of particular policies that people may be familiar with and recast them as as stories where they really are more incrementalist and gradual in their nature. And Social Security is a really good case study for accomplishing that goal because I think most people who know something about um, our history, the history of FDR, think of Social Security as something that was born out of the Great Depression and kind of came out fully developed. Um, and that's not really how it worked at all. Um, you know, Social Security was one of many reforms that were advanced in the first few years of the FDR administration, um, survived 
several founding moments, including the threat of being vetoed right out of the gate by the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional, it passed that hurdle. But it took something like 15 to 17 years for it to start paying off, paying out benefits to more than just a small group of people. And that design of, of having it start small and grow incrementally was intentional. There was, in fact, a competing uh, social movement. The some say the largest social movement in the 20th century called the Townsend movement that was demanding an incredibly radical version of social security that uh, would be implemented immediately, that would essentially compel people to retire at the age of 60 and give um, anyone over that age an enormous pension. Um, And that would have, in a single stroke, taken up something like a quarter of the nation's wealth and eliminated the ability for a large portion of society to continue being employed. And that was an incredibly popular proposal. And Social Security, the one we know today, was explicitly advanced as as an alternative to the Townsend plan. Um, And so in this case study, we, we track how over time Social Security has become the government's single largest program and larger than even what would have a uh, occurred with the Townsend plan, which would have been implemented if it had been implemented and probably would not have changed over time um, in the way that Social Security did. And so part of the point of, of this chapter is to take a story that most people are familiar with, most people know about Social Security, um, and and may think of it as an example of exactly the opposite of gradual and incremental change and actually tell the story of how it is the product, in fact, of gradual and incremental change, which which makes, I think, an important point that we keep returning to in the book. Just because we're calling the book gradual doesn't mean we mean small. Um, a lot of really in, incredibly important and grand goals have been accomplished through, quote unquote, slower evolutionary processes. Uh, and so we, we should not confuse gradual with small. Um, in fact, it can be the opposite in, in many cases. And that's the case with Social Security. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Chapter 5. How did New York City reduce crime and incarceration? So this is a case study that's dear to the hearts of both Aubrey and me because we were kind of bit players in this process. Um, I moved to New York in 1992. just a year after the murder uh, raid had peaked with over 2,200 murders per year. Um, and I, I may be misremembering it, but I think the year I moved there was actually the year that the the jail population, the daily jail population peaked with more than 22,000 people uh, in Rikers Island and other New York City jails. And what we have seen over the last uh, 30 years is just a remarkable success story. Um, I don't know how much time you spent in, in New York, Deidre, but, you know, New York City famously uh, has become, you know, the safest big city in the United States. And that change, contrary to conventional wisdom um, about the relationship between crime and incarceration, that 
dramatic alteration of the public safety story was accomplished at the same time that incarceration went down. And what we catalog in the chapter on, on the New York City case study is that those changes happen gradually over time. Uh, the rate of incarceration and the rate of crime reduction went down incrementally basically almost every year for 30 years up until relatively recently when we've seen a, a spike in, in violence again. And our analysis is that um, you know, there's an old uh, truism that success has many parents. And I think that that actually is the case in the great New York City miracle of crime and, and incarceration reduction, that we've saw a number of things happen at the same time, certainly changes in police practice, uh, police getting more sophisticated about how they assess uh, police performance using things like Comstat, getting uh, more sophisticated about um using tools like hotspot policing and really targeting uh, enforcement efforts where crime clusters. But at the same time, you saw um, nonprofits, civic actors, businesses, all kind of trying to improve safety in, in their own way. And so it really was a case of, um, we used the nomenclature that Adam Gopnik had used in, at one point in the, in the New Yorker, that it was a case of a thousand small sanities um, really that made the difference in in transforming New York City. And that's a success story at this moment where everyone is kind of, or I shouldn't say everyone, where many people are really down, feeling down about government and what the potential of government. This is really a case study of remarkable success driven not only by government, as I said, business and nonprofit actors made a difference too, but government played a very big role in it. And it's a success story that we should be celebrating and learning from rather than ignoring. There were many different things you talked about here. How did the nonprofits play a role in stopping the violence in New York? So there's not one recipe for how nonprofits made a difference, but research by Patrick Sharkey in his great book, um, followed up by I encourage people to look at Vital City, a recent piece written by Michael Jacobson looked at neighborhoods with a vibrant nonprofit actors, um, tended to outperform neighborhoods and precincts without nonprofit actors in terms of crime reduction. And there's no, again, there's not one particular thing that nonprofits did. Sometimes it was summer youth employment projects for at-risk teenagers. In some places, it was business improvement districts, um, kind of adding additional patrols on the streets. In some places, it was block associations um, improving lighting. In some places, it was... Um, groups launching violent interruption programs to try to mediate disputes uh, before before they um, get, before they mushroomed into violence. So it's not that nonprofits did just one thing, but having nonprofits, having nonprofits focused on improving safety and creating thriving neighborhoods does seem to be associated with crime reduction in New York. 2019, bill reform. What were the consequences? What happened here? Well, it's a complicated story. So New York um, recently revised the, the state statute that applies to um, when judges can set various release conditions, including setting monetary conditions of release, and essentially greatly restricted the ability of judges in New York State 
to set money bail for for almost all alleged offenses. Um, and you know, as Greg said, it, in the decades preceding this large change to New York State's bail law, what you had was basically no major legal reforms, but practitioner-led improvements in the system. And so by the time the state's bail law was changed, for money bail was used a lot less often um, in New York State than it had been in the previous decades. Um, and the state's jail population had plummeted. You know, if money bail is used less often, then uh, those people who cannot afford to pay money bail were previously being detained and sent to jail. Now they're not. So the, the state's bail law was changed. Um, and it had some, I think, unpredictable impacts. Um, you had uh, obviously a global pandemic coincide with the only a few months after the the state's bail law was new bail law was implemented. Um, you had a, a rise in crime, which is very complicated. It's it's very hard to say why crime goes up or down. The state's bail law did not appear to have a large impact on that, but it became very politically controversial, the state's bail law, because citizens were concerned and rightly about uh, increased crime on the, on the streets. And so it, it made um, criminal justice reform, which had previously operated in kind of a low-key manner, uh, much more politically salient and much more politically controversial. And I think that in some ways that's that's has been a negative impact of, of the bail law, that it, it has replaced the more kind of consensus-driven and, and modest reforms that had added up to such great success with a more top-down, partisan, legislatively driven process that has, quite frankly, a lot less flexibility when you set a law that basically categorizes large groups of people and limits the ability of judges to, to react on a case-by-case basis, then you know, you're going to have issues and problems that result. Uh, and so, um, sorry, this is, a, this is a bit of a complicated answer, but I think in a way it relates to the themes of the book that um, the bail law was an attempt to kind of, to create a sweeping change on, on, the, on top of what had been a lot of small changes all at once. Um, and it, I think it kind of sent the criminal justice reform process in a more negative direction because of that, because it, it didn't allow for the kind of evolutionary change that had worked so well in, in the past. Now, the history still remains to be written. We're only three years into the state's new bail law. I think practitioners will be able to make adjustments um, to account for some of the challenges that we face. And so we'll see how, we'll see how it goes over time. Um, but, but I do think there's, if there's a message of the book, there's kind of, for people who are more interested in radical change or more frustrated by what they perceive to be the slow pace of change, there's a kind of lesson of be careful what you wish for. If you if you make a big change all at once, if you make an issue more politically salient, then sometimes you're going to face negative consequences as a result that may have been unforeseen or completely unintended. Um, so, so again, be careful um, in terms of, of wanting radical change can can sometimes frustrate the very goals that you're trying to accomplish. I, I was reading in your book that after the defunding of police, there were more shootings in New York. Tell us about that. You know, again, just to underline Aubrey's point, 
uh, we did see violence go up in a very, very dramatic way, gun violence in particular, um, and homicide uh, in, in um, post-pandemic. I am not, you know, this increase is taking place in a complicated situation where you have the pandemic, you have uh, the, the aftermath of George Floyd shooting, you had the demands to defund the police. I don't think that Aubrey and I have done a deep dive, and I don't know that, that it is possible to to do a deep dive, as Aubrey says, and disaggregate and figure out what really caused the spike in shootings uh, that we've seen in, in New York um, of recent years. I think the good news is um, recently we've seen positive change in the other direction. We've seen the shootings starting to go down a little bit. It's not back to where it was pre-pandemic, but it's, it's something to feel cautiously op- optimistic about. Um, but I don't think that you can necessarily lay um, the increase in shootings at the feet of defund the police. Uh, I just don't think there's the data to do that. The next chapter, Immigration Systems, Hidden Strengths. Tell us about the immigration issue and what did you find? Well, we have three case studies. We have one on Social Security. We have one on New York's crime and jail declines. And then and then we do write about um, the United States immigration system. Um, and here, much with the chapter on Congress, we say that it has surprising strengths, in fact, despite the kind of negative connotations that it's taken on. And I, and I guess I just wanted to linger on for a minute on, on the kind of three f- flavors of our case studies. With with Social Security, we're talking about a plan to have Social Security be built in gradual incremental steps that was very intentional. The people who designed the system had that in mind. So we call that a form of in- intentional incrementalism. With New York City's crime and jail decline, as Greg said, you had a lot of more or less uncoordinated actors who were doing similar kinds of work, trying to accomplish similar goals, but not working in concert with each other. And so we call that a form of accidental incrementalism. Um, and by the way, there's something nice about, you know, not having to to decide once and for all, like who gets the credit. A lot of life is like that. You know, good things can happen without you knowing exactly why they happened. Um, and and so I think it's important to, to kind of let go in a sense of like, the master narrative of, of why things have improved. But with incremental, with sorry, with immigration, we call this a form of hidden incrementalism because one of the strengths of the United States, if you think about like a core strength of our country going back to our, our founding, it's our openness, in fact, to new people who bring new ideas and new forms of entrepreneurialism and new connections um, and have always enlarged our country and made it great. I mean, the United States is a nation of immigrants, in fact. Um, And yet we have profound social concerns about potential negative impacts of immigrants that recur over our centuries and decades and somehow sometimes have come out in blatantly racist ways, such as the immigration reforms of 1924 that we write about, which created a national quota system and basically choked off immigration from most of the world into the United States for about 40 years. And so in in the last decades since 1965, when, when our national immigration laws were liberalized again, um, we continue to have these debates. Obviously, people talk about concerns about border enforcement and people coming to our country illegally. But under the surface, what we have is, compared to almost any other nation in the world, 
a very functional immigration system in which over a million people come to the country every year to settle for either a short term or for permanently. And there, there are quite frustrating sometimes processes, but real processes to allow people to come into the country on student visas, to be sponsored by employers. And other countries are incredibly envious of our ability to attract and retain talent. Um, and, you know, a lot of states, even Republican states, pass laws, attempt to attract immigrants to this country. They just don't talk about it. Uh, they know the kind of underlying dilemma, public policy dilemma, which is that we desperately need people to come to this country. We need them to power our economy. We need them to take jobs. They want to come to this country. There's this basic humanity to allowing someone who, by accident of birth, comes from a country that's poor, or they don't have as many opportunities for themselves or their children, or they're fleeing a war-torn country. There's something very basic about not denying them the ability to come to another country. And immigration benefits us greatly. And the challenge is that that is all true, but there are real social concerns and real political concerns about immigration. And so how do you manage that conflict between something that has to happen if we want our country to continue to thrive and grow, even in Republican states, but is not particularly politically popular. That's the challenge undergoing immigration. And the way the United States, I think, has mainly met this challenge, not perfectly, but better than almost any other country in the world, is by making its immigration processes a little more opaque and a little more hidden. And by having legislation and practice in hundreds of different ways add up to a system that doesn't work perfectly and certainly not from the perspective of a lot of people who are trying to come into the country. So I don't want to gloss over that. But again, compared to, to almost every other country in, in the world, works pretty well. Uh, and so that's what we mean when we say the hidden strengths of the immigration system. One of the nuggets in your book was the fact that foreign-born residents and life expectancy yeah, it's a it's a great uh, it's a great little story. Basically, you know, uh, people measure how long, on average, people in different countries will live. And the United States average life expectancy is being brought up significantly by uh, immigrants who come here from other countries. And it's not because they're wealthier. That might be the assumption. Oh, you know, it, people who are wealthier live longer. So if you have more wealthy people immigrate to the U.S., then that will bring up our average. Actually, no, this is immigrants on average are very diverse economically when they arrive here. They may become wealthier over time, but a lot of them come here sponsored by families, family visas. And so it isn't, it isn't so much that they're wealthier or they're even more highly educated. It's that the act of coming to the United States, it's hard. It's not easy to pick up your uh, family and life and move to another country, particularly if you're poor. So the kinds of people who come to this country have incredible drive and incredible entrepreneurial energy, and they bring that with them. And that helps them live longer. And it, it's it's a nice example of often in, in government policy, and it's certainly true with immigration, you want to you want to be able to open the door to people who meet certain formal criteria. They may be highly educated. They may be wealthy. But what appears to be the strength of the people who are coming to the United States is things that are much harder to measure. Like how can a government worker 
create a score or a number for how entrepreneurial you are or how patriotic you are or how willing you are to set down roots in a new country. It's impossible. But we've found a system through family sponsorship, employment sponsorship, through allowing people to apply for college and stay after they're done that allows people to be, the term is self-selected. Um, for the, crit- the criteria that actually matter more than the more formal criteria that some countries use to screen people who can come in and out. You talk about the chain migration and how that works about bringing people in. Tell us about that. Well, you know, I mentioned the 1924 federal immigration law as an example of a, a racist policy that that kind of choked off immigration to the country for four decades. In 1965, uh, the Congress liberalized immigration law. But it embedded in in its in the immigration law a what at the time was considered to be a very conservative measure, which is that a lot of immigration would be determined by so-called family migration. That if you had someone come to the country, they could sponsor other family members, and that that at the time was done intentionally to uh, tilt immigration more to the incumbent immigrants who were in the country, who were mostly from Western Europe. Um, and the law sponsors believe that it would be reassuring to people who are concerned about uh, social and racial change in the United States because it would still be mostly immigrants from Western European countries. Well, it turned out that it had exactly the opposite impact, which is another great example of how we should be careful about uh, – we should be more have more humility about understanding the impacts of, of large-scale government change. So over time – uh, who were the people who were coming to our country and then sponsoring people from their home countries? They came from all around the world. They came often from Asian countries. And so you ended up having, over time, more and more people from much more diverse regions of the, of the world coming to the United States, completely con- in con- contrary to the architects of the law in the first place. But it's one of these beautiful accidents because, again, we have an incredibly diverse country. New York City would not function without immigrants from all over the world. Um, And so we're lucky that the architects of the 1965 law made this mistake because it has become really this incredible engine of dynamism uh, in the United States. But everything about it is makes sense from a gradual lens because what chain migration means is you you have one family come and then they sponsor more people and then all of those families sponsor yet more people. And over time, that has led to a profound change for our good and for our benefit in the demographics of the United States. Another nugget in your book was about the Texas undocumented young people. Can you tell the audience about that? Well, I said earlier that, you know, again, examples of hidden incrementalism. No one's ever heard of this, right? Texas has, with Republican state leadership, often had what would be considered very liberal attitudes towards immigrants and undocumented individuals. So Texas allows undocumented individuals to attend college. And there are other things that very deep red Republican states are doing to try to attract immigrants. They just don't like to make a big deal out of it. And the reason is they know um, that in practice, their states need immigrants if if their states are going to continue to be economically dynamic. And they did offer in-state tuition. So that was really interesting. Yeah. Section three, stumbling toward success. 
you talk about President Johnson and his important legislation. Um, did he believe that there was a solution for every problem? He was very ambitious. You know, he obviously came to office after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, where the nation was mourning. Uh, he won a landslide victory in 1964. So he, he was quite aware himself that he felt like he had a very small window to put through enormous changes in our country. And and to his credit, he did a lot of incredible things. He passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and 1965. Um, he accelerated uh, efforts to desegregate the country. He passed voting rights legislation that is incredibly important and impactful in our, in our country. But he also had the kind of ambition that allowed him to pass um, laws very quickly without the kind of apparatus to implement them or really without deeply thinking through whether or not the goals that they were trying to accomplish were realistic. So we write about two examples of this, Model Cities and Community Action, which are programs that were announced with great fanfare and had enormous goals, but in practice broke down and were not uh, able to accomplish those goals. Now, you gave us four values that we should be aware of. Can you briefly tell us about those four values? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 notion that Greg's really pointing to about respect is that, um, you know, we we do tend to live in such a partisan age that people don't just disagree with each other, but they actually impugn the motivations of the people that they disagree with. And I think that's a really unfortunate um, development in our social world. And I think if people start with the understanding that that problems are difficult to solve, that we don't have all the answers, that we should be willing to look at other people's solutions, then I think that would aid us um, in making a lot more progress than we are making now. And I think that has to start with respect um, and a willingness to engage people on their own terms um, and, and try to understand their perspectives. Um, and I think this book made us in some ways more confident in the underlying values that we use in going about our work, but less confident in, in believing that we have the answers. I think that's true. And just to underline, I do think there's a lot, there is a lot of polarization in our world, but there's a lot of false polarization too. If you look at research conducted by the group More in Common, partisans on both sides of the aisle have drastic misperceptions of how radical uh, their opponents are. So Democrats think Republicans are much more extreme than they actually are in reality and vice versa. And so we should just be cognizant of, of that bias. You know, just one last, one last point on that. I, I think one of the things that uh, is really important is that, you know, most people, they're not engaged with government and public policy in the way that people who are obsessed with this topic are. And I think there are the people, the majority of people who are not as engaged are actually expressing a fairly principled position. I mean, the they care about their families, their day-to-day -day life, and they're making, you know, nuanced decisions about um, things that are directly in front of them that they're trying to solve, um, whether it's getting a better job or taking care of their kids or staying connected to their, their parents or their families. Um, and they're not as engaged by grand political questions. And so if you only think about the debate 
between people who are not just partisan, but hyper-engaged in issues, you're leaving out most of the country. Um, and so I think we always have to keep that group in mind um, when we debate these questions, and because they have very different instincts than the instincts of people who are more politically engaged. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Um, well, we're, we're currently contemplating, we both have busy day jobs, um, but in terms of another book project, we're currently noodling on an idea of really taking a deep dive into the life of nonprofit executives, um, which is kind of our professional world and experience. And I think the, the last five or six years, basically since the election of Donald Trump, have seen an enormous variety of challenges being thrown at our nonprofit institutions and those who lead them. And figuring out who has done that successfully, learning the lessons from those who haven't, I think there's something potentially very interesting there. And so we're kind of noodling on a, another book project on, on that theme. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. And again, we've been talking with Greg Berman and Aubrey Fox, and the book is Gradual, The Case for Incremental Change in a Radical Age. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deidre.